Today on The Lab Report, we're going to talk about what in the world to eat. Well, you are what you eat. You are what you eat. But I think we should bring on a special guest. Do you know who? I do. Liz, Liz Lipsky. Lipsky. The world of medicine can be challenging. Clinicians and patients are always looking for more options, more effective treatments, and in the end, more answers. Functional and integrative medicine focuses on addressing root causes of disease. Here at Genova Diagnostics, we've watched this field evolve and grow for over 35 years. We've not only adapted, we've led. Join us as we talk about functional medicine, laboratory testing, and optimizing health. Welcome to the Lab Report. Hello. Hi, Michael Chapman. Hi, Patty Devers. How are you today? I'm great. How come? Oh, you know, just loving life <laughs> as is customary. How about you? How are you doing? Well, I'm excited. It's a big, big podcast today. We have a big episode. I'm excited about today's podcast. Um, what are we doing today? Do you remember? We're trying to figure out what to eat. Right. Because last time you made some kind of quirky joke about us going on diets and it freaked me out. But in essence, we're just going to talk about diets today. Yeah. Right. I mean, I thought about going on a diet, but I decided that there's better things to do with my time. <laughs> like make more questions of the day jingles? No. Oh, good. What I decided was that going on a diet is not the same thing as having a good diet. Wow. If you follow me. Ooh, that's profundity. Yeah. So mm. therein lies one of my major beefs with the word diet is that oftentimes people go on something, which means ultimately they're probably going to come off of it. And that's different than just changing your diet, right? Changing your life. Changing your diet and changing your life. So that is kind of one of the goals in my mind. Mm -hmm. um, but it sort of starts off with what in the world are we supposed to eat? Great question. Get this question all the time. We do. And it's not just patients who are on a standard American diet that have questions about what am I supposed to be eating. It's all patients, all of us, I feel like to a certain extent face this dilemma of eating is what Michael Pollan wrote about to a certain extent why he titled his book Omnivore's Dilemma. There's so much information out there. There's so many different diets to pick from. There's elimination diets where people are having things removed or they're taking things out of their diet. And it just, it gets overwhelming. Yeah. And, and, and we're in medicine. So imagine if you're just a patient, how confusing this must be. Yeah. So in order to properly answer the question of what should we be eating and get some more thoughts around a functional medicine approach to diet and dietary intervention, we should bring an expert on. I think you're right. And I think when you want a question like this answered, the perfect person to go to is Dr. Liz Lipsky. I agree. Yeah, because like we were talking about, we tied together the gut and GI health with nutrition, and she's probably the perfect person to bridge these and answer these questions for us. So let's stop talking and stop yeah. wasting time. Let's get her. And bring her on. Yep. We have the honor of having Dr. Liz Lipsky on our program. Liz Lipsky is currently a professor and the director of the ac academic de development for the nutritional program in clinical nutrition at Maryland University of Integrative Health. Dr. Lipsky holds a PhD in clinical nutrition, is a fellow of the American College of Nutrition, and holds two board certifications in clinical nutrition and one in functional medicine. She's on the faculty for the Institute for Functional Medicine and the Metabolic Medicine Institute Fellowship Program. 
She's the board secretary for the Accreditation Council for Professional Nutrition Education, on the board for the American Nutrition Association, and on advisory boards for the Certified International Health Coaches and the Autism Hope Alliance. She's a consultant for Conversion Labs. Dr. Lipsky is also a co-author in peer-reviewed papers and is the author of several books, including Digestive Wellness, which is just released, and a video course, The Art of Digestive Wellness, Digestive Connection, Digestive Wellness for Children, and Leaky Gut Syndrome. So she's got a lot going on. And uh, I just want to say thank you so much, Liz, for being on the program and taking some time to be with us. Welcome to the Lab Report. Thanks. I'm really excited. You know, you said you were honored. I'm honored. This is so much fun. (laughs) And, you know, we were talking a little bit earlier, uh, Patty and I were, about diets and just the fact that the whole word around diet um, is problematic and that we really just... You know, we feel like that word has been used so much as relation to weight loss. Like it just gained a terrible connotation. And it's such an important word. So we're kind of trying to get your take on the word diet. Ah, my word, my take on the word diet really comes from its source, which comes from the Greek, which means dieta, which is a way of living. Hmm. And so this conversation that we're having, it's like what we're partaking of, yeah. you know? Right. So for me, the word diet is, this is the manner in which we live. Like what TV shows and movies do we watch? What, what news do we take in? What food do we eat? What relationships do we have? So for me, it's like a much cooler word. <laughs> That's great. And it, I love that that definition takes it to the macro, you know, not just the food that we're putting in our body, but just what we're, what we're bathing ourselves in, you know, from a social perspective. And uh, that's just really interesting. Yeah. But Liz, as a nutrition specialist, you probably get the question all the time. What do I eat? You know, why is my (laughs) diet important? Like what are, how do you address that when you probably get that question a lot? Oh my gosh. Um, well, for me, the perfect diet looks something like a whole foods Mediterranean diet. Mm-hmm. And the reason why I say that is that, that what I really want people to eat mostly is real food. And I don't care so much what that food is, if somebody's relatively healthy. Mm-hmm. I just want it to be real food because we have a new paper that came out that that demonstrates that 71% of what Americans are eating is ultra processed. Wow. 71%. That's, that's so a lot. It's depressing. It's a lot. So if we could get that down to, you know, like 10%, yeah. I think we could really change the health of how people feel. And why I say Mediterranean diet is because we have, we have papers on the Mediterranean diet and, prevention of cardiovascular disease and cancers like breast cancer and colon cancer yeah. and diabetes and um, weight loss and better blood pressure and you name it, we have a paper that shows that the Mediterranean diet is really good for you. So, you know, and who doesn't want to eat like, you know, an Italian? <laughs> <laughs> well, with that, you know, you mentioned the Mediterranean diet and I'm sure people come to you in your practice with very strong feelings about the specific diets that they've chosen. How do you remain sensitive to their their choices and still address their nutritional needs and, and your concerns around that? 
Well, first of all, like nobody can tell me what to eat. I'm going to eat what I want to eat. <laughs> yeah. And preach, preach so, <laughs> yeah. And so, you know, like my husband meditates twice a day and he's always saying, Liz, you should meditate at least once a day. And I'm like, yeah, well, I just don't, it's not my thing, you know, yeah. like sometimes I meditate, <laughs> yeah. but sometimes I garden and sometimes I go exercise and, you know, for me, all those are meditated. So, you know, that's how I feel about food. By the time somebody came to see me, they usually were willing to make some changes in how they were eating, but not always. So, you know, food is so intertwined with our emotions and our memories. I had a client once, and for her, Twinkies were love because her home environment wasn't that great, but her grandparents adored her, and they would give her Twinkies. And so... Who am I to take away her Twinkies? Sure. Yeah. Right. You gotta understand that emotional connection to certain particular foods. Yes, and we all have them. So, so for example, if I'm working with somebody who's a vegan, and that person seems to be thriving on that diet, well, I'm just gonna help support them do it better. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's really true about somebody who's on a ketogenic diet or FODMAP diet or really any kind of diet. It's again, you know, for me, it's like, are they getting their nutrient needs met? Are they, are they thriving on what they're eating? And why I'm saying that is that there are people who keep eating fewer and fewer and fewer foods. Right to try to feel okay, and pretty soon they're in a box where they've got five foods left. I've worked with people who have had um, less than three foods that they're able to eat. Right. And we... You know, so then, yeah, so then it's like, well, how do we, like, help them regain their health so that we can start slowly introducing more foods? Yeah, I, I completely agree with that. You know, it, it reminds me of some of my teachers who also... Th- discussed what we do as not necessarily fixing people's GI tracts, but as clinicians, we're supposed to introduce more freedom, right? That's really what at the end of the day, health is about having more freedom. And so, you know, when I, when I think about what you're talking about and how often patients have been on restrictive diets for, you know, maybe good reason at first, but it it got a little bit out of hand or we didn't figure out what, what really needed to be restricted and for how long, um, you're taking away people's freedom. I love that take on it because how I have always expressed it is like so many people are walking on a tightrope and my goal is to have them to be able to walk on a road. So we're talking kind of the same language um, because, you know, the most important thing about our eating our food is that that we feel like we're not having a battle with it that we feel at peace with what we eat right nice right and with that being said you know you mentioned a little bit about supporting somebody who's maybe vegetarian or on a vegan diet is there a particular diet that you find yourself having to support more than others well i think a vegan diet can be really tricky in terms of protein needs Mm mm-hmm and I've also worked with some vegans who were Pop-Tart vegans. Yeah. Mm. Right. Um, Pop-Tart, popcorn, you know. Right. Um, you know, so vegan but didn't really know how to do it well. 
And then, you know, again, I've worked with, um, you know, so vitamin B12 is a huge issue when somebody's a vegan. And so using a sublingual B12 supplement, I think would be really important. Um, making sure that somebody's um, iron status is good. You know, those are kind of the main, three main considerations would be B12, iron, and protein. And, you know, I've worked with people who are vegans who are really, really healthy but have some quirky body issue. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. um, what I've seen for most people when they go on a vegan diet is they feel really great for a while and then they kind of crack and burn, but they stick with it. Mm. Yeah. Well, because, you know, like in my heart, I am totally a vegan. Yeah. But in my body, my body's like, no, you need to eat poultry and fish. Right, right. You have to do it because um, because I, I was actually like a, I think one of the reasons I feel strongly about it is I was probably a not terribly healthy vegetarian for about 20 years. Mm-hmm. And one day I ate a piece of chicken. And my body did one of those little, like, happy dances. (laughs) And I'm like, well, this totally grosses me out, but my body's telling me something different Mm. than my mind is telling me. Interesting. Do you have concerns around things like the ketogenic diet, where people are on this diet to lose weight, but there's a significant amount of fat involved in some of these diets? Do you have any concerns about any of the, you know, extremes in either the paleo or the keto diet? I don't have a lot of concerns about the paleo diet. I think it's pretty well balanced. Mm-hmm. Um, the ketogenic diet, I do have some concerns about. I think, you know, when it first was proposed in, you know, like 40 or 50 years ago, it was used in a hospital setting for people with intractable seizure disorders. Yes. Yeah. And in three months, the seizures were gone and they normalized people's diets again. I also see that because it's a really low carbohydrate diet, that it can starve out dysbiosis. Mm-hmm. And so we have some people who have a leaky gut and dysbiosis and we find, oh, you know, that ketogenic diet seems like a miracle for them. But mm-hmm. then after a few months, you know, again, we want to start normalizing somebody's diet. And I have students who, who um, they've been on the ketogenic diet for years. Yeah. Yeah. And it's that question of what is it doing to the microbiome and, and, and how does that tie in? Well, we know that it really changes the microbiome. And what we don't know yet is, is um, I was reading one paper recently where they were using the ketogenic diet I forget if it was in people with um, multiple sclerosis or Parkinson's disease. And at a four week, they saw that there was a lot less diversity of the microbiome and it looked like bad news. Right. And then, yeah. and then in six months, it actually, there was a lot greater diversity. Hmm. But the question is, were people eating more vegetables or what else was going on? Right. Um, yeah. And I think, you know, you two are the perfect people to talk with this about because it used to be that when we only used culture for stool testing, mm-hmm. that that it was like the biggest bullies that showed up. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, oh, we're seeing a lot of Club Ciela here, you know. Yeah. And, you know, you saw things that grew really well in agar-agar. So 
And I think that that might be that when we do some of these um, kind of low carbohydrate diets for people with dysbiosis and we do that, that what happens is that, that over time we're changing the microbiome, but also we're killing off some of those bullies. Yeah. And, yeah. and we see that all the time when we're uh, on the phones going over reports for different GI effects tests. We see um, often I'll, I'll see people with low short chain fatty acids like N-butyrate and just low anaerobic commensal bacteria overall. And one of the first questions is, are they on a ketogenic diet or a low low fiber diet? Because essentially the, the ketogenic diet is a low fiber diet. It is, and so so is like the FODMAP diet, which is a low prebiotic-rich diet. When you look at like what that all those letters mean, each one of them, like mm. the first one is fructulosaccharides. Yeah, yeah. Oh, those are prebiotics, mm-hmm. and oh, oligosaccharides, those are prebiotics, <laughs> That's and disaccharides. Right. Oh. <laughs> You know, I mean, and polyols. And so you look and you go, they're all prebiotics. And right. and so when, you know, prebiotics are the food for the microbiota. So when we limit carbohydrates, then we start selectively starving out different microbes. And as you said, we start seeing that those short-chain fatty acids that are so important start going down, especially the butyrate. Yeah. And, and with the ketogenic diet, I mean, we do know that as an intervention, it can be really, really powerful for, you know, diabetes and weight loss and being kind of a, um, a rapid trigger for those types of um, changes from insulin sensitivity. How are you supporting somebody through that, that dietary change to make sure you're not decreasing the microbiome? What we would do is we would use these diets for like four to six weeks, maybe up to eight weeks, and then start adding foods back in and see what's triggering. Um, And so always kind of keeping that in mind. And I think that these low-carbohydrate diets, the greatest benefit is that they do starve the microbiota. Yeah. And they allow it to kind of regroup and heal itself because that's, what they like to do, you know, and the body, you know, if you cut yourself, your body knows how to heal that. And the microbiome certainly knows how these microbes are so wily. Oh my God. <laughs> you know, so they really know how to regroup if we just give them the right environment. And so these restrictive diets give them, and also the, the enterocyte lining of the gut, and the mucosa, you know, all that mucus and those biofilms, they just get a chance to totally regroup. Yeah. Yeah. And we've heard you speak several times at IFM and A4M about how to use diet as a treatment. And I know in your the latest edition of your book, you know, you mentioned some of these things like the GAPS diet and, you know, the autoimmune paleo diet and how they interact with the microbiome and the gut-brain axis. You know, as you teach that, Um, What are some things you'd like people to understand around using diet as a treatment? Well, I think it's really cool. And I know both of you have seen this in practice. When you recommend to somebody, and this goes back to like when people feel strongly about their diet, (laughs) um, sometimes, sometimes you have to just say, you know, you feel like crud. Yeah. So what do we got to lose? Let's just try this for two weeks. You know, 
and we'll try a, a FODMAP diet or we'll try a specific carbohydrate diet or um, a paleo immune in IFM, they call it the Renew Food Plan or Comprehensive Elimination Diet. We'll try one of those diets for two weeks. And what's the most amazing thing to me is how often when you choose the right food plan for somebody, in two weeks, they're feeling 80% better. They're remarkably better. And they're so excited because they're saying, like one of my students just tried the FODMAP diet. And she said, oh my gosh, like in two weeks, I feel better than I felt in 15 years. Right, right. So people get really excited. So the first thing is just, you know, trying to figure out what's the right diet. So if somebody has a lot of gas and bloating and irritable bowel syndrome, the FODMAP diet is probably the go-to diet because we know it really works for people who have small intestinal bacterial overgrowth and IBS, yeah. which are kind of the same people mm-hmm. pretty much, yeah. you know. So we know that that's going to work really well. We've got a lot of good research on that. Um, if somebody has inflammatory bowel disease, my go-to at this moment in time would be the specific carbohydrate diet because we have the most research on that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's a really, um, that's a good clinical tool, I think, too, because uh, there's been so many occasions when we've talked about an elimination diet for a patient and, you know, you say, I, ideally, you would be on this for you know, on the elimination phase for six to eight weeks or more. And you can see, you know, that's when the bargaining starts taking place (laughs) and you can see there, you know, they take a defensive posture, but you're right. If, you know, they come back in two weeks and they're feeling that much better. Usually they, they say, I'm, I'm good with continuing this for as long as you tell me. Yeah. So I, I never start with, let's do this for six to eight weeks. It's just too long. There's nothing I want to do for six days, you know? <laughs> I mean, it's too, it sounds too hard. But if you ask somebody to go gluten-free and dairy-free and sugar-free and alcohol-free and all these frees, you know, like, they can wrap their head around two weeks. Okay. Yeah. I feel like crud. I can do this for two weeks. And then let's come back and talk and see how you feel. But when sometimes somebody will come back and they'll say, you know what? I don't feel any better. Yeah. But then their MSQ shows that they are a little bit better. Right. You know, or their MSQ shows that they're not any better. It's like, okay, well, this wasn't the right plan. Let's regroup and let's think about this again. Right. right? Yeah. But most of the time somebody comes back in their life. They're, they're excited. They're like, wow, this moved and this moved and this moved. And I'd like to do this for a couple more weeks. Or they come back and say, I'm feeling so much better, but I'm really missing bread. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So can I, when can I have some bread? Right? <laughs> Michael's looking and, at me. I don't know why he's looking at me. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, and so, I don't know, do you like bread? I do. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, um, so, you know, you that's when the bargaining starts. Well, could you make it another two weeks without bread? Because you still, you know, it's going to take four weeks to get your antibody level down by 50%. Right. So do you think you can make it another two weeks? You know, and they'll say yes or no. If they say no, 
then you go, okay, let's see what happens and let's load you up on bread um, like two or three times a day for the next three days and see how you feel. Mm-hmm. Exactly. That's the challenge. You um, know, um, yeah. So, And I, you know, we talked a little bit about keto, but another another facet to eating and eating regimens that's becoming really, really popular is intermittent fasting. And I was just wondering um, what your thoughts on, what your thoughts are on intermittent fasting and, you know, maybe the, the time intervals that, that you think work best for normal people. <laughs> <laughs> um, so first of all, I like intermittent fasting. I think it's a good idea. I also think that we are on some kind of bandwagon that it seems like every integrative health professional thinks that intermittent fasting is the best thing ever. Yeah. And, and I think we're going to have a backlash to it. I think there's some people, it probably isn't the greatest thing for, but we're kind of like on this wave. Mm-hmm. Um, and when you look at the research on intermittent fasting or even alternate day diet fasting, what you find is people end up eating about 350 fewer calories a day. Mm-hmm. And the, that little bit of change in the amount of calories that people eat ends up helping with blood sugar control and insulin control and gives the body a chance to actually rest. You know, when we're, when nighttime falls and we go to sleep, you both know this, but that's where all the healing happens in the body. Right. We start recycling, the microbiome starts um, doing its miraculous work of getting rid of, you know, microbes that don't belong and starting to like rebuild. It's like all the really kind of maintenance procedures happen while we're sleeping mm-hmm. and while we're resting. And so I think the idea of giving the, the gut a chance to rest for, you know, 10 to 14 hours is a really important thing. In my own life, I kind of suit for um, a 10-hour window where I'm eating during the day, which means that if I have breakfast at 9, that I can eat until, what does that make that? Till 7? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right? So that doesn't seem too hard for me to do or... Or even I know that there was one paper that demonstrated that women who could fast for um, even 13 hours a day, which means uh, how many hours is that that they could eat? 11 had reduced uh, reductions in breast in breast cancer incidence. Wow. You know, so so you know, it's like I think the research is just starting to come in. I think there's a lot more hype about it than than what we really know right now. Um, but there was also another really cool paper that came out this year that wowed me. It was on um, calorie restriction for people for two years. Mm-hmm. And these people all had um, cardiometabolic syndrome or diabetes. Mm-hmm. And they were um, asked to restrict their calories, 500 calories a day for two years. And people weren't able to do that. But what they were able to do was reduce their calories by that same, again, number, 350 calories. And what the doctor reported, this cardiologist, he said, if we had 
we don't have five drugs in combination that could get this kind of a result. Right. Well, right. And so, again, it you just know, demonstrates the power yeah, of diet. Right. As a treatment yeah, strategy. Yeah. Yeah. And 350 calories a day is, you know, not that much. Right. Yeah. It's the it's bagel that, that I much. had for breakfast. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, Liz, if I could tie in a little bit from your book, the fifth edition of your digestive wellness book was just released it's on the shelf in our medical affairs department and one of our Bibles. Um, we, I just want to tie in the whole dig in concept to nutrition because one of the more common questions we get from clinicians on the phone is where do you start? Do you start with the GI? Do you test you know, a neutral and GI effects at the same time. Do you clear up the gut before you go for nutrition? How do you address those things? Oh my gosh. <laughs> I think you have to look at the person sitting right in front of you. Yeah. And that just takes experience. Yeah. And some guessing. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, so, so the first thing is, I think it, it also depends on the, again, the person so does this person have the money and the funds to just start with testing? Yeah. Mm-hmm. If, if money is not an object, well, then let's just start with a GI effect and a neutral and see how you're doing. And, it's, and while we're waiting for these labs to come back, let's start on a diet, mm-hmm. you yeah. know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, but I do think that, like, if somebody can... It, it, again, it depends on what's going on with them. So, for example, if I was working with somebody with Crohn's disease or ulcerative colitis, I would want a GI effect. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I, you know, I just, because those are serious. If, if I was working with somebody with irritable bowel syndrome, I would want a breath test to rule out small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. Mm-hmm. If I was working with somebody who had signs of fungi, you know, um, in their nails, in their toes, in their vagina, you know, in their throat, in their eye, wherever, um, I would start looking and going, well, you know, we should probably do um, organic acid testing and take a look and make sure that there's, you know, that you don't have a lot of fungal overgrowth. Yeah. So... So, you know, I love using the tests. I think that they give us a window into what's going on with somebody that's really hard to find with diet alone. And um, nonetheless, there's sometimes where it just makes sense to just start with the diet and then move on. You know, if somebody's got migraines, then I'd probably just start with diet intervention. And But I might want to do food. I probably want to do food sensitivity sure. testing. And maybe um, make sure that they don't have celiac disease. Right. Yeah, I I agree with that, too. I think a lot of times when I'm asked that question um, on the phones, I I normally will say, well, what's the chief complaint? You know, if the chief complaint is GI origin, then you can start there if you're, you know, having to pick and choose. Um, if, If the person has fatigue and energy problems or mood problems, you know, maybe I'll, I'll look a little bit more on the nutrition side first. Well, you know, most people are eating such a poor quality diet that starting with diet makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, you know, what we still don't really know is, is um, it, it's really interesting. Like right now there's a big, um, I think, international study going on on people with Crohn's disease 
using either specific carbohydrate or Mediterranean diet. Hmm. And, you know, I'm kind of rooting for the Mediterranean diet. <laughs> and the, the reason why is because it's something that you can eat for the rest of your life. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, um, I'm kind of thinking it's not going to be as good, but, you know, we don't know yet. And And so, you know, the main thing, again, is like sometimes I was teaching this course and it was an online course for a a graduate program and and one of the students said sugar is my nemesis for eight weeks I'm going to go off sugar will anybody support me in this so almost all of us went off sugar for eight weeks and the reports from just that one one dietary change were oh I had migraines for 12 years and my migraines are gone Um, I'm sleeping better my moods are better my energy is better one man lost 25 pounds yeah. You know, and so diet, you know, this is our most intimate conversation that we have with our external world. Every time we eat something, we're, we say, I want to be just like you. <laughs> right. You know? And so every time we eat that, like, do we really want to be like that bagel? Right. Right? It's a good question. Or would I question. rather be like the smoothie that I just had this morning? Yes. Interesting question. <laughs> I'm blushing. If you, you, it's not a visual medium, but I'm blushing. <laughs> well, I, I just say that because this morning I just had my smoothie, and like yeah. the first sip, I mean, my smoothies are like crazy. You know, like I start with a rice protein powder and, and that has nutrients in it, and then I add like fresh pomegranate seeds and kale and ginger and. Um, powdered greens and powdered reds and cocoa and um, rice bran and you know like all a cinnamon and all kinds of stuff to yeah. it, right so but this morning I just took that first sip and I went oh wow my body just needs this yeah mm. yeah I'll, I'll do but this I probably tomorrow morning felt, I promise okay, you but that, my promise that, to you Okay, but Michael, that said, if I had a bagel, a toasted bagel with some butter on it, my body would also say, mm, I love this. <laughs> <laughs> well, I wanted to give a little bit of time because we were talking before we started recording and, and you're doing a lot of really cool stuff, a lot of content generation. Um, we, we mentioned that you have the, this new book out that we've been using downstairs. So I wanted to give you a little bit of time to kind of tell people what you've been doing uh, on your website and elsewhere. Well, it's, it's kind of a fun time for me. I, I'm still teaching half time and trying to see kind of what comes into my life. And one of the things that I've been working on the last 18 months is the rewrite of digestive wellness, which is, this is now the fifth edition. And my gosh, there's so much that changes. Did I just say my gosh? (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, there's been so many changes that have happened in terms of what we know about lab testing, what we know about the microbiome, what we know about leaky gut, what we know about LPS, um, what we know about different diets and how they work, what we know about autoimmune disease and its relationship to the gut or even the gut brain in the last, you know, seven years. So it was really fun to be able to research all of that and put it into um, this new edition um, with 
so many people like you use it as a reference book. Yeah, um, it's great. And and then the other the other thing was as I was writing it, I was like, wow, there are other things I'd like to put in this chapter, but this book can't be a thousand pages. It's already over five hundred, <laughs> you know. So so it, so I created a video course that we're in the final stages of editing, and it's got twenty nine videos that are kind of like this conversation there, you know, like, how do I think about things? Yeah. And, you know, what are my clinical decisions? And then what's some of the new research um, that excites me? And why is food so important? And what kind of supplements to use and how to think about lab testing? And so I kind of made these 29 videos that are, you know, anywhere from 10 minutes to 30 minutes, and then nine cooking demos. And I've got about 35 handouts that clinicians can use um, in their practices, too. So that's going to come out probably in February. So I'm really excited. And it's called The Art of Digestive Wellness. That's great. That sounds, that sounds really, really great. Where can clinicians go um, w- when this comes out? Where is there a place yeah, that they can be directed or stay tuned for or just kind of pay attention to your website? If people go to InnovativeHealing.com, which is my website, um, they can just um, go, come onto our mailing list, and when it's ready, we'll let them know. Perfect. I really don't bombard people with a lot of email. <laughs> Perfect. Liz, how would you take all of this amazing information we learned today and translate this into clinical practice? I think the whole idea of all these diets is really complex, and so one of the things that's important to me that docs should know and that um, patients should know is it, it's good to work with a dietitian or a nutritionist or somebody who really understands how to use these diets and the ins and outs of them. And, um, you know, dietitians and nutritionists are really trained to do this. This is kind of our area. And it's so much more than just handing somebody a diet. Um, we can hold people's hands a lot better than a lot of the physicians have the time to do. Yeah, well that's said. great. I, well said. I, I couldn't agree with that more. Right. But I think of, of all the things we talked about here today, Liz, I think the most important question we have for you is, do you like sandwiches? Yeah, I do. What kind? Well, I'll tell you if you tell me, but <laughs> I think my most favorite sandwich of all time is a BLT. Wow. That's a good one. The classic. That is a good one. Yeah. Yeah. What are your favorite sandwiches? I'll be honest, mine's peanut butter and jelly. I want even more classic than you, Liz. Wow. Wow. That's pretty delicious. <laughs> I'm I'm a sucker for a Reuben. I Ooh, love Reuben. the combination of sauerkraut and and the dressing that they put on there. I'm just sauerkraut on any sandwich, I think, is a brilliant idea. Naturopaths. Um Liz, thank you so much for your time. We're honored that you came. Liz. This has thank been you. a really, really great conversation and um, it's chock full of a lot of information. And um, yeah, I just really appreciate, we both really appreciate you yeah. you coming on and, and spending this time with us. Well, thank you. I so love what you do at Genova and um, glad to be a tiny little part of it. <laughs> Thanks, Liz. All right. We'll talk to you again soon. Okay. Thank you. Right. Okay. Bye. Bye. Patty. What? All the educational education in this content podcast is meant for <laughs> education. Educational purposes. <laughs> it is not meant to be misconstrued as medical advice. That's good looking out. Or diagnosis. Thank you. Or treatment. 
Nice. Or doctoring. You're the best. Okay, we got that out of the way. <laughs> Why don't we talk about what we're going to do next time? Yeah, I think next time we're going to talk about oxidative stress. Ooh, all mm-hmm. right. Yeah. What is it? We'll see. Okay. Next time on The Lab Report, we talk about oxidative stress. Why is glutathione abbreviated GSH? Glutathione. We better figure that out. You've been listening to The Lab Report. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to our podcast, rate us, and leave us a review. To learn more about Genova Diagnostics, visit our website at gdx.net. There you'll find information on specific testing, educational resources, and how to connect with our show. Call us at 1-800-522-4762 or email us at podcast at gdx.net. Did you know the word diet contains the word die? Hmm. It says it all. Do you think I should have mentioned that my bagel was a gluten-free bagel? Would that have been better? No. Oh. Okay. <laughs>